AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and it's just me today. Joe is away from work, so I reached out to Martin Wallen, professor emeritus at Oklahoma State University and author of numerous books, including the 2021 book Squid, part of the Reaction Animal series that we'll be discussing here today. The book is out in both digital and physical forms, and I highly recommend it as it dives into not only science and natural history, but also mythology, folklore, and literature. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview and discuss all of this with Martin. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Your book, Squid, part of Reaction's Animal series, came out last year. And uh, as I started reading it, I realized this was exactly the sort of book that we'd love to discuss on the show. Uh, So if I may cobble together a couple of questions here, where did your interest in cephalopods come from? And how did this book come together? Right. Well, that's that's, um, a nice question to begin with. Um, I had written um, two other books about animals. Um, uh, One about foxes, which is also part of the reaction animal series. Um, And I'd written a book about dogs. 
Um, the book about dogs, I actually started before uh, the Fox book, and that really arose out of um, relationships I had with horses, um, oddly enough. Uh, but because I, I'd been around horses for a long time, I'd increasingly begun to wonder how to engage with um, uh, or how to write about uh, an animal uh, with whom we have to engage in a completely nonverbal way, um, and most effectively uh, uh, through touch um, and other forms of, of sensory perception. Um, and there's a, a mode of being on horses that's known as being quiet. Um, but I could never quite work out a way to, to deal with that. So um, I began thinking more pointedly about my relationship with dogs and uh, how we interact with dogs generally, uh, which led me then to think about uh, relationships with non-domestic animals like foxes and so on. Um, and then um, I began to think, well, what about creatures that are even more um, alien to us, uh, creatures we probably don't interact with um, on a daily level, uh, the way we interact with um, domestic animals or even the wild animals that might be passing through our, our neighborhood. Um, and I, I really began to, to question what animal might I um, explore uh, just in a perhaps a, a theoretical way uh, that would enable me to, to tackle questions like um, simply what is it like to be in a world with unknown, unknowable uh, creatures, not only ones we have to remain quiet about, but ones we can barely even begin speaking about. Um, and so I started exploring squids uh, and found them enticingly bizarre uh, and enticingly weird um, and really uh, just took up a series of questions about about those strange, odd animals and, and how um, human cultures have over the millennia tried to describe them or account for them or express their anxieties about them and so on. And that's where I ended up. Yeah, I really love the way that you, you tackle the subject of, of, the, of the animal, of the squid uh, in this book, because you you know, you approach it from the, you know, the, 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 the philosophical and the naturalist viewpoint. You get into the scientific uh, research, both um, uh, current and, um, and end of the previous century and so forth. And then, then you get into this idea of, of, of literary treatment, mythological treatment, uh, etc. So it's, uh, it, 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 I love the net that you cast in this. But you begin with Aristotle uh, and the 4th century BCE philosophers' attempts to understand and chronicle cephalopods. Uh, what did Aristotle get right and what did he get wrong? Well, first of all, I might push uh, someone, uh, an ancient writer like Aristotle, is that he's really working within his cultural context. So in his view and in the view of, let's say, the, uh, the classical Greek world, he got virtually everything right. Um, what we would see that he got uh, uh, wrong in that regard is when he describes uh, the cephalopods um, as bloodless, uh, because, of course, they are not bloodless. Uh, they simply have 
a different color of blood than um, most of us terrestrial animals. Um, and um, when he makes uh, um, uh, references to certain qualities, like the fact that they lay imperfect eggs, um, because we think, well, those are squid eggs and they're appropriate to squids and they're like squids uh, and that they're aqueous. But by imperfect, he means um, that that's a term he uses in reference to other animals as well. By imperfect, he really means that uh, the eggs um, don't remain, uh, don't stay, uh, keep the same appearance um, that they uh, have when they're first laid by the, the mother squid. Other way, let's say chicken eggs or um, lizard eggs basically are, are laid as uh, hard-shelled eggs and stay that way until they're hatched. Um, so that seems like um, uh, something incorrect in our thinking, um, but it's actually appropriate to Aristotle's um, uh, um, um, conceptual view of, of the world. Well, we generally um, say that Aristotle got right, of course, uh, is his um, physical descriptions of, of really all the animals and, and everything he, he um, writes about. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really what um, puts him at the, the very foundation of modern um, natural philosophy and, and ultimately modern science. Um, because he he does pay a lot of attention and great care to the, the physical appearance of squids, uh, and and that enables him to make certain rudimentary uh, um, uh, classifications among the different kinds of squids. Um, it's also important to bear in mind, and maybe this is on the wrong side, but um, it's more of a qualification that Aristotle being uh, a Greek and a Greek of the fourth century BCE um, really stayed pretty close to shore. Um, he, most of his observations of squids were done on the Isle of Lesbos in the Gulf of Kalani um, rather than out in the deeper waters. So that means that the squids he saw were the smaller inshore varieties of squids, and possibly some of the some of the larger varieties, which he probably would have seen on fishermen's boats or uh, as uh, uh, dead uh, specimens that floated ashore, um, and those uh, would have been less common to him, uh, and so he doesn't offer that many accounts of, of those squids, and nor does he really delve into the, the differences between the inshore and the offshore squids. So uh, really, that's, that's what I would say is, um, let's say, right and wrongish about uh, Aristotle's um, uh, accounts. Now you mentioned the, the the fishermen, of course, and that leads to the question: like, what was the the culinary view of 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 squids and their relatives during Aristotle's time? Well, that's that's a, a, an intriguing view. I, I think almost um, everyone um, who isn't a, a, a vegan has had calamari uh, or maybe different kinds of squid. Um, squids are nice to eat. 
um, and they were nice to eat. Then, except that the uh, ancient Greeks had a much more ambivalent view of of uh, what we call seafood um, than than we do, and that ambivalence comes from uh, a general general revulsion uh, toward the sea, which was commonly referred to as being simply perfidious, uh, because it was a dangerous place, uh, and uh, you could sink, uh, you being a, a human, could sink um, down uh, below the, the surface and never be seen again. Uh, and fish, including squids, um, were known to eat humans. And so the idea of eating an animal that eats humans uh, just tends to stir the stomach, but also tends to, to um, rub against the philosophical view of metempsychosis, which would suggest that if um, uh, squids are eating humans, then we are essentially eating humans that have been transformed into squids by their digestive tract. Uh, and that's something that, that uh, seemed to be immoral um, and, and um, uh, culpable. So that people who did eat squids, and there are uh, numerous references to, to this um, ethical view, People who did eat squids were somehow morally suspect uh, and somehow um, were either indulgent or not to be trusted. Um, part of that view, I think, gets, gets um, um, exacerbated later on by the, the high morality of someone like Plato, uh, who really lived a sort of puritanical or had a puritanical uh, view of the world. Uh, and so he, would, he really condemned uh, some of the um, writers who focused on um, their, their diets and um, what they enjoyed eating, like squids. So all in all, it was, it was people, people ate them almost certainly, but um, they were unhappy about eating them, at least in the, the Greek world. Uh, and notably, there are very few um, uh, visual depictions of squid or even um, marine life, um, apart from, let's say, dolphins, um, until pretty late in the, the Greek world. Now, why is there so much uh, terminological confusion concerning squids, octopuses, and cuttlefish in classical literature? This is something you discuss in the book. Right, right. Well, again, that, that uh, largely comes from Aristotle. Um, and uh, who, Aristotle, when he was describing uh, the cephalopods, um, really grouped them all under the general, general heading of malakoi, uh, which can basically means um, um, soft-bodied creatures, or as I like to think, squishy, squishy creatures. Um, and he didn't go into that much detail in distinguishing, as I said earlier, uh, the inshore from the offshore um, uh, squids. He distinguishes uh, squids from cuttlefishes and octopuses, but even there he refers to uh, the polypods, uh, and then he'll refer to the cuttlefishes, sometimes using the term sepia, um, uh, and other times as polypus, um, and other times as 
Truthus or other times still as truth oaths. Uh, and it, as, as later commentators and translators uh, are obviously confused about exactly which creature he was referring to. Uh, the confusion has less to do with um, octopuses than it does with the two decapods, cuttlefishes and squids. Um, and there, um, Aristotle does say that the, 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 he, does, he does allow for a certain distinction, and that is based on the, the um, uh, quality of their flesh. So cuttlefishes, which swim closer to shore, he says, um, uh, absorb more of the, the hard um, surface, hard substances of the earth, so they have um, a bone running through their um, bodies, the, the cuddle bone, um, and that he referred to as the uh, os CBI, or the, the, the sepia bone. Um, and then uh, the, the uh, uh, squids, uh, he then just referred to as uh, the toothos and the toothos. And it's hard really to know, again, what he meant by the tooth is, which has the ending is and toothos, which has the ending os. Um, but it does seem that, that, that that's largely my deduction as based on um, uh, lexicons and uh, simply the, the fact that he gave more attention to the tooth is. Um, that, that one tooth is refers to the inshore, tooth os refers to the offshore. Um, so it's really a confusion of what he, the confusion is partly due to his, his vagueness um, in his accounts and to the later confusion of, of, uh, of commentators and translators. Largely, again, because those commentators would themselves not have ventured out into the sea to look at squids or for that matter, cuttlefishes or octopuses, but were probably writing in landlocked libraries uh, uh, copying or uh, summarizing um, um, Aristotle's texts. So uh, that, that confusion does become pretty much a, um, um, a quality of, of squid uh, or even squishy um, uh, natural history for the next many years, let's say the next thousand or so years. And uh, as, as you later discuss in the book, I mean, we still have, we'll, we'll, we'll encounter cases where something we're calling a squid is actually not technically a squid, right? Do you mean the, uh, the cuttlefish? Um, wasn't there, uh, when, when you start talking about the, um, the vampire squid? Oh, uh, yes, the vampire squid, yes, yes, of course. Um, right, technically that, that is not uh, a squid, it's, it's actually uh, more of an octopod because it doesn't, um, it doesn't really have the same uh, layout of, of arms and, and tentacles that squids do. Uh, so, yes, it, it, you're right. That's uh, one of the strangest um, creatures um, and, with, and also a creature with one of the most delightful names, uh, the vampire squid from hell. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, but it almost certainly is or let's say at least possibly, it's, it's not actually a squid, but a CPL. 
Yeah, I love the the illustrations we see of this particular um, uh, cephalopod in, in the book. One of them I was really taken with. I hadn't seen seen this particular illustration before, but the artist almost it seemed like they were trying to make the squid appear like a skull. Am I alone in, uh, in <laughs> interpreting it this way? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's certainly appropriate. That's that's uh, I believe Carl Chun's um, uh, illustration. Um, uh, oh no, I, I have it right here. Uh, it does look like a skull. Um, because it's, it's black and it's, it's in, this, in this particular illustration, it's upside down. So it has this, this sort of ghoulish mouth, mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be in sort of a hideous grin underneath two eyes. And then there's a, a nose socket, right? That's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of a fanciful rendition of vampire squid. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. 
In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, uh, going back to the uh, to, to ancient writings here, uh, Pliny the Elder, of course, his accounts inevitably come up when anytime we're, we're discussing Western understandings of the natural world. And I was really taken by a bit from Pliny that you discuss in the book. Uh, can you explain the proposed connection between uh, the, quote, lavish nature of liquid and large marine animal sizes? Well, Pliny, um, very much the, uh, an heir of uh, Aristotle, uh, describing the world as as he thought, uh, and describing the world very much as a Roman. Uh, so when he looked out onto bodies of water, lakes, rivers, and the sea, um, he saw that there 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 was this um, large form that was basically being fed continually by rainfall and other forms of precipitation. So that's that's the nourishment that he sees taking place, um, and then he draws a basic analogy uh, between uh, uh, two different realms of the world. Uh, on the one hand, there's uh, the terrestrial realm uh, populated by humans and land animals, and then the um, aqueous world. Uh, and he says every form of 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 um, uh, life that exists on land must also have its counterpart in uh, the sea, uh, in the aqueous realm. But because the aqueous realm is uh, more obviously nourished by precipitation, uh, by precipitation which is like uh, the aqueous realm than land is like uh, precipitation, uh, that means then that the animals are nourished themselves more um, than land animals are. So they grow to greater uh, sizes, even monstrous sizes. And uh, because water is more fluid, they also are liable to take uh, uh, more varied shapes uh, and even diverge into completely uh, different animals that do not exist on land. Um, so that analogy is, is 
Uh, so plenty of kind of thinking about natural history. Um, and it's also a clear indication that he's thinking speculatively, since, of course, he didn't have a bathosphere uh, and couldn't see below the, the surface of the, the dark sea. Um, and, but that, it's, it's also uh, on the basis of that, that, um, uh, that later accounts of sea monsters uh, claim to have some basis in um, natural history and, and fact. I also love a bit that you from Pliny that you share uh, because this is one of those quotes that I guess when you're when you're looking at things Pliny shared, I guess sometimes you know second or third hand about things in the world. Uh, sometimes they they may feel a, a bit detached from the actual reality. Uh, but this is one of those quotes that that I feel like actually just speaks across the ages and and matches up with like my experience of seeing uh, octopi in the wild or or any cephalopods in an aquarium, uh, and that is quote that squids are virtually incomprehensible to those uh, who have never seen one because they continually shift their appearance by moving their arms and changing colors. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I thought that really had a a real ring of solid truth to it. Absolutely. Uh, and as I mentioned at the very beginning, one of my interests uh, in squids uh, is just that incomprehensibility. Uh, how can there be such an animal? Uh, the, the simple, the, the, the basic word cephalopod, the official term for this uh, whole group of animals, really means the head of feet, right? Mm-hmm. Cephalo and then pod for feet. Uh, that makes no sense. And that name encapsulates uh, the oddness and strangeness, the alien uh, quality of, of these, these creatures. Um, and they, they really do challenge our basic sense of what an animal should be like um, or act like, uh, because indeed they, they do change shape continually. They change colors continually. Um, and they, in many ways, they should not exist. Uh, there were even questions at, at various times in history about whether they should be categorized as animals uh, or uh, instead as uh, plants. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they, they've always been a real mystery uh, and a real challenge to our uh, ability to, to uh, create um, taxonomies um, uh, and explanations and based on categories of animals and their relations to one another uh, because there's always the troubling question of how do we set this head of feet in relation to ourselves? Um, mm. and who's backwards? Are we built backwards or are they? <laughs> Now, uh, you mentioned the mysterious, and of course, you, you spend a lot of time in the book to, discussing uh, mythologies and folklore concerning uh, various cephalopods, and of course, you get into the into the giant squid quite a bit as well. Um, so, so g- getting more into the, the scientific realm here, uh, can you tell us what role Japetus Steenstrup played in bridging squid myth and squid science uh, of the 19th century? Yes, uh, that's, that's a... a Great question for um, lots of reasons. Um, Stainstrup is really the, the turning point uh, from the tradition of, of, let's say, squid lore based on legends and um, uncertainty uh, and uh, the um, terminological 
uh, vagueness that we were talking about to modern classifications that um, made possible scientific studies about squids and cephalopods. Um, so for a number of years, uh, especially in the uh, North Atlantic area, uh, there had been, um, of course, there were the legends of the, the Kraken, uh, the, the uh, big monsters that swallowed up um, uh, ships uh, or that uh, people would mistake as islands and land on and perform uh, religious rituals and, and then be swallowed up and dragged down to the sea. Um, and those legends were intermixed with a number of beachings of giant squids, uh, the Architutus ducks, um, and other sightings of squids uh, and that were recorded as historical events, uh, really starting um, uh, in, let's say, the 16th century by uh, Guillaume Rondelet, who uh, described um, uh, um, uh, uh, strange creatures that he referred to as um, monkfish or mm. uh, uh, Episcopal fish. And he uh, illustrated his Rondelet, that is, illustrated his accounts with drawings of, of um, creatures that had fins instead of feet and, and hands, but were wearing a, a monk's habit or uh, a cardinal's mitre. Um, and that, those sorts of accounts really verge on, on um, uh, myths and uh, uh, fabulous accounts of but there was still an effort to provide some kind of empirical credence to uh, the existence of these unbelievable monsters. Um, so as a number of sightings and beachings occurred, by the middle of the 19th century, uh, Steenstrup came along um, and fortuitously, someone gave him um, a, a beak from one of the um, uh, giant squids that had beached, um, and uh, he delivered uh, a lecture in 1854 uh, where he went through all the different accounts of, of sea monsters uh, by Rondelet uh, and others, and he performed a kind of a literary analysis of all the descriptions, um, which had probably been um, um, gathered by Rondelet and others from, from fishermen's accounts who tried to describe these bizarre creatures they had seen. Um, and the Stainstrup then concluded that all these accounts referred to one very real creature. Uh, and so after a lengthy uh, series of exegeses of these various um, accounts, he quite dramatically um, presented to his audience uh, this beak he had been given, um, a very imposing uh, beak. Uh, a squid's beak is sort of like a hawk's beak or um, a parrot's beak, uh, so it's really sharp and uh, curved and, and meant to tear flesh. Uh, so this is a good-sized beak, uh, and he, with that sort of dramatic flourish of showing his audience this beak, um, he was really 
to to change the accounts of seafarers and and uh, let's say the the legends of of monsters into a verifiable uh, animal that could be given a scientific name, and uh, he's the one who then gave it the name Arctuthus dux. Uh, and with that name, uh, he basically cleared up the, the ambiguity that existed since Aristotle, and he uh, allowed for uh, a focused and disciplined study of, um, of squids based on um, a real taxonomy, and a taxonomy that lays out um, different uh, genera of squids, different species of squids, and is able to map their locations around the world. So, in, in, in short, Stainstrup really marks the transition from the world of myth and uncertainty and ambiguity to the world of modern empirical study. Now, speaking of modern study, uh, one of the, the the big topics that comes up in all of this, and you discuss in the book, of course, is the is the, the uh, our attempts to understand cephalopod intelligence. Um, and you bring up some of our responses to cephalopod intelligence, uh, and the, and even the idea that they could be quote the the primates of the sea. Uh, what are what are the challenges and limits? Uh, in play when it comes to understanding the mind of the squid? Well, the challenges uh, at play are, 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 are great, uh, even even though uh, uh, there is such a thing as uh, scientific study of squids, and uh, um, the science on squids is growing. Uh, the, the taxonomy of squids is, is um, expanding exponentially as more and more species and genera are being discovered uh, continually. Um, but on the other hand, exactly what these creatures are still remains um, teasing because they're these strange creatures whose heads consist of feet. Um, but they also have sizable brains, um, and they show a real intelligence. Um, the, the marine biologist Jennifer Mather has pointed out, I think, most value, valuably um, that squids exist, and I'm quoting her here, worlds away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, she says, even though their, their brains may not have quite the same um, structure as ours, yet they can still be seen to work in analogous ways uh, to our brains, and therefore their intelligence can be seen to be somewhat analogous, albeit uh, bizarre. Um, it's Worth noting that squid brains um, regulate movement through visual cues. Um, that makes um, their perception um, of, and, and their movement, uh, their response to that perception, almost simultaneous. In fact, so simultaneous that it would be virtually the same event. Uh, whereas, let's say, in, in humans, uh, most land creatures, uh, we perceive something and it might take a second or two to, to respond. Uh, squids uh, perceive and uh, respond instantaneously. Uh, uh, scientists have 
focused um, particularly on what they call a, the giant axon, a very large nerve fiber that radiates throughout the, the, the wall of the, the mantle, uh, the, the long tubular part of the squid. Uh, this, this nerve is about a millimeter in diameter, uh, and really the largest uh, nerve of, of, of any, any um, animal in the world. And it's the size of, of this nerves that is able, enables the, the, the squid to transmit um, its perceptions from its eyes and, and other receptors around its body instantaneously into its musculature to move uh, so that they can, um, they can propel themselves by, by shooting out uh, 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 streams of water within milliseconds of, of um, perceiving something that they want to attack. Uh, and um, their intelligence then is, really is, I think, can, can and should be described as one of movement on the one hand and predation on the other hand, or really that's, that's almost the same as well, because they really are predators uh, and they are hypersensitive um, to the, the, um, their environment. Um, they have a number of organs and uh, mechanisms for perception, not just their eyes, uh, but along their, their uh, entire bodies uh, that enable them to perceive well beyond our five senses. They don't have hearing, almost certainly, uh, but they are able to perceive uh, motion uh, and, and motion at a very, very fine degree. Um, and they also then can uh, famously change colors, um, flash colors brilliantly, illuminate themselves um, through uh, chromatophores, which are essentially um, sacs of, of pigments that uh, cover their entire body uh, and that can be um, contracted and um, uh, opened uh, at will to, to uh, change the color of, of the skin. Um, and as these sacs uh, open and shut, expand and contract, um, they reveal uh, some iridophores uh, underneath. And the iridophores uh, reflect uh, light back uh, as a kind of iridescence. Uh, but it's a different kind of light. It's more of a polarized light, uh, which we humans aren't really geared to perceive that we can see a kind of sheen the way you would see uh, on a soap bubble. And these changes, these chromatophores, are really controlled, again, by the squid's eyes. So uh, movement, uh, color changes are all instantaneous uh, and um, very much part of, of squid intelligence, governed by uh, astonishing powers of perception, uh, 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 very dominant and, and uh, uh, impressive nervous system uh, and uh, a brain. So to think of them as primates of the sea, they are, again, predators, um, and they pretty much live not at the top of the food chain because, of course, they're eaten by many other creatures, but uh, their intelligence uh, and their athleticism certainly makes them formidable. Uh, so uh, it definitely puts them at the top of, 
uh, many people's hierarchy. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Now, one of the, one of the things that you mentioned here that really um, 
blew me away. You, you discuss Hanlon and Messenger's research into quote unquote squid talk and touch on their idea that that the squid in particular may engage in not only play, but dishonesty in communication. Uh, what are we to make of this? Right, right. That's the, that is that's a, a, a delightful um, uh, discovery by these scientists. Um, first of all, uh, Jennifer Mather, again, um, has studied um, what she refers to as squiddish, uh, the, 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 the language of, of squids. Um, she's categorized it uh, through studying um, various postures and light flashes uh, that squids uh, make uh, so that she's able to come up with something approaching a, a lexicon. Um, and for the most part, um, uh, scientists and, and others uh, look at this lexicon as, as um, simply being informational, the way we usually think of animal communication being informational. Um, uh, birds um, uh, squawk and chirp, uh, perhaps to say, um, um, good morning, or uh, you and I are boyfriend and girlfriend, or uh, there's a predator close by, or something like that. Um, and if, if we think of, if we start to think, as Roger Hanlon and, and John Messenger suggest, that perhaps squids are not simply communicating information, but they're creating misinformation, um, disinformation, uh, that, that suggests that there's something else going on, a, a higher level of, of um, communication. And it, it suggests that there might even be, a, let's say, a performative quality to uh, squiddish. Uh, to squid communication, uh, which is say it's, it's not literal, it's not simply um, informational, um, but it's something else. Um, and that dishonesty plays a big role in, let's say, literary allusions. So the very, very much of literature um, does not simply consist of information um, uh, relayed about something. Uh, it's not simply uh, the empirical um, descriptions of Aristotle, uh, but it's suggestive. Um, it, it's allusive. Um, it relies on puns, um, and it can rely on jokes. Uh, so that suggestion that um, squids are not simply, um, let's say, um, unimaginative animals who are uh, merely saying food here, uh, predator there, uh, but um, perhaps have the capacity for um, joking um, or um, uh, imagination. But then since squids are undeniably major predators, um, and even cannibals, we have to ask uh, what are their jokes or what are they imagining? Um, are they making jokes about us, uh, which is discomforting? Um, um, or are they making jokes with a punchline, I will eat you? Um, or if they're Jokes are not found funny by other squids. Will they be eaten? Um, that's a 
plenty of room for um, jokes of our own and also um, worry. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, now, a lot of that, I guess, we're talking about uh, uh, information, you know, by cephalopods for cephalopods. Uh, uh, but uh, but coming back to the topic of what cephalopods can do for us, uh, right. so something that, that certainly drives a lot of the research, as you point out. Um, what are the brightest possibilities here, uh, and and what are the arguments for for eating cephalopods, even if they might be primates of the sea? Because I know that um, I, I I know people who, like, for instance, are um, pescatarians, uh, but don't eat cephalopods or make a d- distinct choice not to eat them based on some of the intelligence uh, uh, research out there. Well, the the argument for um, eating. Um, cephalopods is simply their uh, enormous numbers. Um, they they um, they swarm throughout virtually um, all uh, um, oceans and seas uh, except for the Black Sea um, and in high quantities. Um, and uh, they they are highly uh, or the fisheries uh, uh, geared around squids. Are very successful in catch, catching uh, large quantities of them, um, and that's important um, in this time of industrial uh, fishing, uh, when um, many species of, of aquatic life are being simply wiped out uh, through the drag netting and and other forms of, of industrial fishing, uh, so that. Um, it, Really has become a, a mass-produced kind of of, of food, uh, which have depleted virtually everything. Squids seem to be impervious to that, or at least so far, um, and um, that's that's really the argument. Um, I'm uh, I'm going to hold off on on what it means to eat something of of uh, intelligence for just a second because. There are other possibilities for um, ways humans have, have sought to use to exploit uh, squids. Uh, one, of course, is their uh, the giant axon. Um, so that scientists have begun to to harvest uh, squids just for that nerve, um, in the hopes of of using them to uh, read rejuvenate um, humans who have uh, become um, paralyzed, who have lost uh, neurological functions. Uh, um, and that's, that's a big hope for the pharmaceutical industry. And there are even suggestions that because of the squids, um, the capacity to change colors, that maybe um, some um, genius will find a way of transferring that into use by uh, the um, military-industrial complex to allow, um, let's say, camouflage in the battlefield, uh, so that um, um, just as in uh, Philip K. Dick's novel *Scanner Darkly*, where the uh, uh, policemen wear these uh, scanner suits that change their uh, uh, physical configuration completely, uh, so let's say, warriors could change themselves completely so that nobody could see them. Um, so that sounds pretty far-fetched, but um, it's, it's perhaps on the 
at least the uh, the table. Um, as for eating them, or let's say exploiting them in any sense um, for the military or uh, for um, uh, medical uses, I think those arguments really rest on viewing them as resources, um, overlooking that intelligence, um, or at best as, uh, or at least disqualifying um, squid intelligence uh, as being less than human intelligence. Um, it's long been our tendency to say uh, whatever is alien uh, to us, uh, whatever is different from me, uh, it cannot be as good as I am. Um, and uh, it can't even be real because uh, it's not human. It's not really intelligent. Uh, and I, I, might, I might even uh, mention that um, when I submitted my book to the press, one of the editors took real issue uh, with my references to squid humor. Um, she said, uh, that's impossible. There's no such thing as humor in the animal world. It has never been documented. Um, well, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I disagree. I, as I said, I spent plenty of time around horses, and I know that they can be real jokesters. Um, and I know dogs can be jokesters, and uh, fox hunters around the world will tell you about foxes playing real tricks. Um, and so there is such thing as humor, um, but it's hard to fathom uh, what uh, cephalopod humor or cephalopod intelligence would be. But um, I think it's also important to recognize, I'll, I'll just um, challenge your fish-eating friends um, further and say, well, certainly all kinds of fish, all creatures have intelligence. Um, and we have to ask ourselves if it's just different from ours or if it really and truly is lesser than ours, uh, which would justify us eating a lesser being. Um, I don't know. Now, you, of course, get into cephalopod evolution, uh, taking us back 500 to 600 million years. But, but then something special seems to have occurred during the, the struggle with fish and marine reptiles. Uh, can you describe what, what, uh, what, what we think happened here? Um, well, of course, it's all highly speculative. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, around 450 million years ago, I, I believe this is what you're referring to, uh, there what is uh, always been called as uh, the Devonian extinction, when um, pretty much all, uh, almost all uh, life um, disappeared. Um, and slowly animals began to reappear um, in, in various parts of the world, but decidedly not in the deepest oceans uh, because oxygen levels there are, are low. But cephalopods seem to do okay. Uh, um, they moved offshore um, squids in particular um, moved into the deeper water so that uh, there we again have, look back to Aristotle's two um, accounts of the inshore and the offshore squids. Uh, the offshore squids grew bigger um, because squids generally lost uh, their shells, their molluscian shells, 
um, they be, uh, were able to move faster, um, and they didn't have the bones that fishes had, uh, so that they were able to um, uh, prey upon the fish that previously preyed upon them, uh, because uh, boneless squids uh, were able to move much faster and uh, react more quickly than bony fishes could. Um, so that was that was one of the theoretically uh, one of the key steps in the development of of ur squids to somewhat modern squids that we see fairly recently, relatively speaking. Now, we've already alluded to changes going on in uh, the oceans today. Uh, is there a cephalopod explosion happening in the world today? Are we seeing changes in cephalopod populations? Well, it certainly seems so in many ways. Um, uh, popular presses around the world have referred to squid blooms or uh, squid invasions, uh, where large populations of cephalopods show up uh, in a particular area. Um, and it seems that that could be happening because of, of um, climate change, uh, so that um, the, the, the currents are shifting. Uh, that's, that's one explanation for why um, uh, Humboldt squids have uh, shown up in large numbers in certain years around Monterey Bay, California, um, uh, and have uh, such large numbers that they have washed ashore uh, and, 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 and you know among by the by the millions, um, causing of course um, serious hygienic issues. Um, and it's also um, possible uh, because of uh, let's just say that the, 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 the explosion of squids is also possible um, because of of um, the depletion of other fish, um, of, of fish that might be eating squids or competing with squids for um, other food. Um, maybe um, uh, whales uh, have been uh, uh, depopulated enough to allow for explosions of squid. But it's also possible that people are starting to pay more attention to squids. Um, uh, when there are putative squid blooms somewhere, then fishing fleets will swarm to a particular area um, and uh, fish that area heavily. Um, and since squids have a fairly short life, a very short life, uh, generally about a year, um, they can disappear and then reappear again uh, uh, later on. Uh, and as they move through the current, they can appear in a different place. Uh, and again, in large numbers. Um, I might just mention uh, squid breed in such large numbers that scientists have referred to them as the protein pump of the sea. So that as they uh, uh, breed in one part of the sea and then move to another part of the sea, die and decompose, uh, uh, they provide nutrients for other fish, other uh, aquatic uh, life forms, um, so that um, they, they've moved around in that way as well. Um, so um, at any rate, it seems that squids are highly adaptable. If, uh, as climate change happens, 
um, squids more than bony fish um, and other um, aquatic creatures um, are very willing to change. Uh, they're very willing to to uh, move into areas that had previously been thought to be incompatible with squids uh, or cephalopods or really any form of life. Um, and I think that the bottom line there is we see that almost certainly squids will endure. Now, obviously, I love the section in the book on folkloric squids and how interconnected uh, the folklore is with our our just basic understanding of the various species. And uh, I I think our listeners will particularly enjoy this uh, section of the book as well. And uh, I can't possibly ask you about all of it, but one example I wanted to, to bring up uh, it was the the idea you share of, of the Norse sea reek and the idea that the sea reek uh, might be linked to ammonia in the giant squid body. Can you describe this? That's a, a slight um, connection um, that I hope I'm not um, uh, making too much of. But it is the case that uh, the giant squid, um, Archituthus ducks, uh, made famous by Stainstrope and, and others, um, possesses um, 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 ammonia chloride in, in, its, um, um, in its flesh. Uh, and the reason for that is that these are animals that live very deep in the ocean, um, and the, the ammonia chloride uh, provides buoyancy so that they don't um, uh, float to the surface uh, where they wouldn't want to be uh, because they'd be eaten by birds or whatever. Um, and also prevents them from sinking down to the bottom. Now, all squids have ammonia chloride, um, really uh, just a giant squid and and a few other uh, species in genera. But in much of the folklore of squids, uh, folklore extending up into, into novels uh, of the, the modern era, uh, the, the reek of ammonia is very much a, uh, an aspect of an encounter with um, a, a kraken uh, or uh, a half goofa or one of these uh, monsters of the seas that would supposedly um, uh, wrap their arms around an entire ship and drag it to the, to the bottom uh, of, of the ocean. Um, so the, the, I think the, the sea reek and as a possible literal account of um, uh, this this feared um, mythic and yet real monsters that uh, everyone dreaded um, and always left kind of of telltale odor uh, in its wake. Yeah, throughout this section, I was just you know trying to you know to put myself in the the, the mindset, possible mindset of uh, of say uh, you know a Norse uh, seaman, uh, you know witnessing this, uh, smelling these creatures, you know encountering uh, uh, you know firsthand and then secondhand knowledge of them. Uh, it's re- re- really remarkable. Yeah, and and um, frightening. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, the the sea is frightening enough. Uh, since we all know that uh, humans aren't meant to be in the sea in a natural sense, we tend to sink uh, and 
we also know that way down deep there are monsters like the vampire squids from hell and giant squids who will uh, attack our ships. Yeah, and, and uh, I love how this is a recurring theme in the book, talking about our, our relationship with the sea, our relationship then with squid and the, and the idea of the squid. And of, of course, that leads us to the squid gods. So when, when even when I, I say squid gods, I know many listeners are probably thinking of, of a certain fictional deity that we'll mention in a <laughs> moment here. But there is a squid deity in Polynesian traditions, right? Well, um, I hesitate to say, Speak authoritatively about um, uh, another culture, um, but Polynesian culture is very close to the ocean. Um, and from what I was able to, to uh, understand from my own um, very amateurish um, uh, investigations, uh, is that there are prayers to Kanaloa. Uh, who was described as God of the Squid. Um, it does not seem that that God is actually a squid, but is perhaps represented by a squid, uh, since it would be inappropriate to say uh, uh, the God's name uh, directly, literally. Uh, but it is the case that also that, as in many uh, cultures, um, there are certain um, uh, beings that serve as family guardians, uh, uh, which can ward off threats uh, and bring um, good fortune uh, to a particular family. These, these, of course, these guardians uh, would be revered, and among those would be uh, the, the squid. Um, and in that regard, one of my happiest discoveries um, when I was um, researching um, for the book uh, was the, the modern New Zealand poet Darren Kamali, um, who invokes um, ancient Polynesian traditions in his poetry. Um, he, he calls upon uh, guardian squids um, to rejuvenate um, his culture uh, that has been subsumed uh, by uh, the Western views, by uh, commercial exploitation of non-human life. Um, and so his, his songs um, about uh, squids, um, about a, a squid uh, becoming a man uh, whose tentacles uh, then become uh, dreadlocks, uh, who then chants these these rejuvenating songs, um, they become chants calling up this 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 ancient um, uh, life, this ancient um, uh, um, familiarity, uh, and um, uh, let's say companionship uh, or guardianship uh, among animals, or let's just put it this way: uh, an ancient community among humans and and other creatures uh, that perhaps can um, rectify some of the ills caused by um, Western exploitation um, and Western views that, that um, squid intelligence uh, cannot be um, compared to human intelligence, that it has to be less than intelligence to enable us 
to exploit them just for their nerve fibers or for uh, their flesh. Wow, I, I feel like that that would that would almost be a fitting end to the interview. Uh, right there, but <laughs> but I have to, of course, ask you about uh, about the squid in in literature, and particularly in some of the uh, the, the weirder uh, weird fiction of, uh, of of the twentieth and the twenty first century. And again, there, there's a lot in the book. I'm not going to ask you about everything. I encourage our, our listeners to to pick up a copy and dive in themselves. But uh, one of the big ones you, of course, discuss is Jules Verne's treatment of the giant squid in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, how essential is this novel to pop culture visions of the giant squid? Oh, well, it's, it's enormously important. Um, in many ways, Verne uh, does just the reverse of what uh, Stain's group uh, did. Um, so that in the narrative, the, the main character, Professor Aronnax, who is a natural historian, um, gives an account of the giant squids that he sees from inside uh, the, the submarine uh, that's um, uh, led by uh, the, the evil uh, Captain Nemo. Um, and he, he gives uh, Aranax's descriptions very um, accurate, empirical, uh, dispassionate description. Uh, but then almost immediately that scene turns into um, uh, a very exciting, dramatic account where the squids are attacking the Nautilus, um, and uh, they become the, the um, uh, repellent embodiments of the old myths, um, and who who are uh, who try to pull uh, uh, Aranax's companion, the, the harpoonist Ned Land, from the from the ship until Captain Nemo uh, hacks off the tentacle of, of the squid. Um, and so on, uh, Ned Land is almost chopped in two by the, uh, the, 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 the beak, the giant beak of the monster squid. So really what Vern is able to accomplish there is making something seem, something that seems scientific, uh, into a, um, uh, a, a, a rejuvenation of the old myths of the Kraken of the sea monsters. Uh, so we end up with um, a decidedly modern empirical kind of dread, uh, and a, a modern kind of anxiety uh, that so that we can name what these creatures are uh, and still feel uh, that, that uh, oh, yikes, uh, if I venture out into the sea, they'll definitely grab hold of me and, and chop me in half with their giant beak. Um, so that that has really uh, laid the groundwork, as as you yourself said, for uh, much of the later kinds of stories uh, that uh, describe um, space aliens coming to the world and destroying uh, the world. Um, and of course, those aliens all are squids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that you, uh, you of course, yeah, bring up H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu and the Call of Cthulhu, uh, which I think most of yeah. our listeners are, are probably familiar with. But then you also touched on a work by William Hope Hodgson, The Boats of Glen Carrig. And I've read uh, Hodgson's The Nightland, but I wasn't familiar with this one. Can you tell us a little about it and its role in squid-related weird fiction? 
Uh, first of all, I really have to give a shout out to my um, great friend, Tim Murphy, uh, who is not only a, a, a lover of squids, in fact, almost as much as I am, but also um, uh, an expert on Hodgson's book and weird fiction, fiction generally. Uh, and he's, he's just finishing a, a, a book on Hodgson. Um, and the, the, in, in short, the, the story of the books of Glenn Carrick um, uh, come from the, uh, the voice of John Winterstraw, who's the narrator, uh, who's basically telling a kind of sailor's story of, of having once um, uh, uh, encounters strange monsters at sea. Um, basically, uh, what happens in, in uh, his strange, his sailor's story is that his ship, um, the, the Glen Carrig, gets caught in um, a big field of seaweed, let's say probably something like the Sargasso Sea. Uh, and it's worth noting uh, parenthetically that Hodgson uh, did spend quite a bit of time in the Merchant Marine. So he was familiar with ships. Um, he was worried, uh, familiar with um, uh, ship lore uh, and with uh, these kinds of tales uh, that sailors tell one another. Um, but he also was interested in um, that category of, of fiction uh, that's called weird, weird fiction. Um, so while uh, the Glen Carrig is caught in uh, this Sargasso Sea or just a field of seaweed, um, um, the, the sailors begin to, to um, fret because they encounter other ships that have been tra obviously trapped there so long, they've just become uh, skeleton ships, uh, until finally they drift towards uh, what seems to be an island. Uh, and they try to um, set up a, a residence on the island. Um, and then uh, Winterstraw notices uh, a few times, he, he looks over the side of a boat um, and the, the, the title of the uh, uh, novel comes from the fact that the, uh, the sailors uh, escaped from the ship, from the Glen Carrick, and the ship's boats, uh, which they rowed towards the island. Uh, so while he's in one of these boats, uh, Winterstraw looks over the side, and he sees a white, human-like face staring back up at him. Uh, and of course... Um, scares the bejesus out of him. Uh, and then once they get on the island, uh, the sailors begin to encounter other beings. Uh, there seem to be encampments of uh, squid-like characters. Um, it seems that perhaps these squid monsters uh, are uh, traveling underneath the island in, in subterranean caverns and showing up on land uh, and attacking uh, uh, the, the fortified residents of the sailors. Uh, and the, the attacks happened um, uh, nightly over a, a span of time, uh, even to the point that, that um, the sailors become exhausted uh, and they, they set up lookouts hoping to, to ward off more attacks. Winterstraw at, at numerous points looks out to sea and he can uh, see the uh, squid monsters 
swarming into the, the island and um, what he describes as disciplined formations. So it's as though the squid army coming to attack the uh, marooned sailors. Uh, and the, the disturbing quality there and the really intriguing quality, and I, I think this is what Hodgson, uh, what makes Hodgson such a, an interesting writer in, in much of his work, um, uh, and is that he really probes the question of alien intelligence. Um, what, what a lot of what you and I have been talking about in the past few minutes. Um, in this regard, we could even think back perhaps to the squid jokes um, that might not be funny to us uh, because these disciplined military formations of squids uh, would seem to demonstrate uh, a high intelligence, uh, a very sophisticated intelligence, and an intelligence that's directed at us humans in a way that is about as discomforting as I think is possible. And that is thinking of us humans as the resources for a squid economy. Uh, so the question would be, what use would humans be to a squid civilization? Uh, how can humans be exploited uh, by squid intelligence? Um, and that really goes against everything that um, we want to say about ourselves in relation to our fellow creatures uh, and about our view of ourselves as uh, the only uh, dominant intelligent uh, force on the planet. Uh, and I think it's, it's, as my friend Tim Murphy suggests and throughout his discussion of weird fiction, um, since weird fiction is pretty far removed from, let's say, mainstream fiction, that's the kind of qu question that weird fiction can ask that other forms of, of literary inquiry or other uh, forms of scientific um, or historical inquiry really cannot venture into. Uh, and that's, I think, the value of weird fiction and um, uh, the value of learning how to read um, the myths and legends of ancient uh, times and the, the um, uh, theological accounts of other cultures in a less skeptical way, perhaps in a more uh, open-minded sense of, of seeing that maybe we're not the only intelligence and maybe there are other ways of, of engaging intelligently with the world. Excellent. Well, uh, you know, fi finally, one last question here. Uh, after reading the book, I have a, a couple of guesses about what your answer might be, but do you have a favorite squid species? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't even have to hesitate. Um, my favorite uh, squid um, is a little apart from the traditional favorite squid. Um, the favorite squid, I think, generally is um, uh, the, the giant squid uh, because of all the lore uh, uh, that's grown up around it over the millennia. But I really became fascinated by uh, the Humboldt squid, um, the, the, um, the, the, the Thinicus gigas, right, uh, which is about five feet long. Um, it's also referred to as the red devil. 
because it has plenty of lore of its own. Um, so that we hear over and over again that um, sailors fall from the boats, um, they're fishing boats, and they're immediately devoured by swarms of, of humboldt squids who chomp them to pieces. Um, and uh, there, there are videos on YouTube of, of underwater cameramen being attacked by uh, uh, one of these five-foot-long uh, squids coming after him and, and ripping his oxygen hose and, and so on. Um, and of course, these, these are the squids that um, defy explanation in their ability to, to pass through um, areas of the ocean where there is, there is no oxygen uh, and, and where they're not supposed to be able to go, and yet they do. Um, and they're also um, hunted in large numbers for their uh, giant axons uh, and um, and their flesh, and they're feared. And I and I, I think because of their uh, adaptability, uh, their voraciousness. Um, and I'll, I'll just even add this one detail. Um, there's one um, weird, weirdly de delightful video of some scientists putting a camera on a Humboldt squid to see how it interacts with other uh, Humboldt squids or what it does way down in, in the, the ocean depth. Uh, but the video only lasts a few seconds because you can tell that the squid is descending and then immediately another squid approaches and eats it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the, the, the screen just goes blank. Um, so that, that aggression even to... Um, cannibalism of, of one's um, schoolmates, of uh, maybe one even one's family, if that's conceivable. Um, all that is alien and gets right to the heart of why I wanted to write the book. Excellent. Well, again, for everyone out there, the, the book is Squid. It is part of Reactions Animal series. It's available in physical and digital formats. And, and now that I know that you also have one on the fox, I'm going to have to pick that up as well. I, I, I'm instantly thinking of all the, the various folklore surrounding the fox and its secretive nature. Oh, great. Great. I just, just put a plug out. Uh, let me say that uh, there are hundreds um, different animals covered in uh, Reactions series. Um, and really, all those books have have a great deal to offer. Um, they uh, all all the different authors um, have their own approaches to particular animals. Um, not everyone is trained in literature as I am. There are scientists, sociologists, historians, um, journalists, um, you name it. Uh, so um, many people have uh, been intrigued by. How to how to talk about an animal and what it means to try to understand uh, the relevance of one animal to human life and culture. Excellent. Well, th thanks for being on the show, Martin. Sure, Rob. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. 
All right. Thanks again to Martin Wallen for taking time out of his day to chat with me. Again, the book is Squid from 2021, part of the Reaction Animal series, which also includes Wallen's book on the fox. Uh, Wallen's other works include Whose Dog Are You? The Technology of Dog Breeds and the Aesthetics of Modern Human-Canine Relations and City of Health, Fields of Disease, Revolutions in the Poetry, Medicine, and Philosophy of Romanticism. As always, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you'll get wherever you find your podcast. Core science and culture episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, Listener mail on Mondays, short form, artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. And on Friday, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you'd like to reach out to me uh, or Joe or any of us here at the show, simply drop us an email at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride The first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.